Arts Roundup with Simon Burton on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello, I'm Simon Burton and welcome to Arts Roundup in the merry month of May, an hour of art stories in which we'll look at political art sculptures that look at social trends and provoke debate. We'll preview a new exhibition which gets into emotive art that packs a punch and we'll dip into the life of a poet who's making waves. In this edition... Artisan sculptor Ian Walter tells the story behind his new public sculpture with a political message which challenges the inhumanity of the conditions migrant children live in stranded in the port of Calais. The Art Hound Gallery's Natasha Dawn invites us to an upcoming pop-up exhibition featuring pop art in the city centre to sample some emerging and famous contemporary art focusing on emotive themes presented with interactive flair. And we profile Cambridge author, poet and actor Michael Brown, a friend of Hollywood actress Sigourney Weaver, and currently in the thick of the city's poetic scene. Political narratives have a way of either boring us rigid or really engaging us, depending on our point of view. But offering up the subject matter in a contentious piece of artwork is an art in itself, in trying to pick something that really cooks. Sculptor Ian Walter makes sculptures specifically designed to provoke topical debate and strike a chord in societal trends that we recognise, but perhaps haven't yet discussed, tackled or got to grips with. His latest work, Children of Calais, is due to be unveiled in Saffron Walden on the 8th of June. It's a work that echoes Auguste Rodin's The Burgers of Calais and looks at the plight of children caught up in the continuing refugee crisis at the port and the wall of inhumanity and indifference they face in today's increasingly heartless world. Ian dropped into 105 to preview his sculpture, which will be unveiled by Lord Dubbs. Ian, um, first of all, um, you, your wife is um, uh, Claire Mully, um, who is um, a very interesting um, author. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about what kind of a part she plays in your art. Does she play a part in it? Well, she does. Uh, I think we, we sort of cross over into each other's genre a little bit. So when she's writing her historical biographies, she'll often get me to be the first person to read a passage or a chapter, and and I'm one of a number of people that she, she uses as a reader. And then I do the reverse, so, you know, I'll be in my studio tinkering away, and I'll th- think I'll get to something really amazing. And Claire acts as the sort of sense check on it. She'll walk in and say, either, wow, that's amazing, or actually, Ian, you know, no one's going to understand that. Um, now, I mean, having a look at some of your stuff, um, obviously heads play a very big uh, part in what you do. Um, I was looking at those um, wonderful um, uh, uh, head sculptures, which were effectively um, spinning tops. Um, th- those are quite remarkable. Um, where did that idea come from? And um, it, it, it basically explains what you actually do with your art, doesn't it, as well? Which is all about heads and amazing things coming out of them, basically. Yes, you could <laughs> say that. The, the spinning tops... Um, I made, uh, must be three, maybe four years ago, and it was when uh, the extreme right political parties across Europe started to uh, make advances, and you, they, they were starting to get a lot more self-confident, uh, but no one was taking it very seriously. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it was all seen, we would laugh at um, uh, the Dutch... Uh, extreme right politicians we'd think it was funny and and it just struck me that you know how dangerous the extreme right is and yet how we can see it as a sort of plaything. and and so I made these grotesquely oversized heads of political leaders and turned them into spinning tops 
And so that in, in an art gallery, you would be invited to spin them. And they were very dramatic as you pumped the red handle up and down on the top. You spun these portraits of the uh, political leaders. And, and it was very strange to see what they became because you lost sight of them. But, you know, it sort of questioned what part do we play in, in the responsibility for any extremism in, a, in, a, in political discourse. It's dangerous, though, I think, for an artist to react to what you hear on the news, on Radio 4, um, because it, it sort of, things change very quickly in that world. And so it tends towards the political cartoon rather than the artwork. So I think you have to take a step back from the day-to-day -day political and try and look at, at societal trends or political trends uh, because you know the the artwork uh, that I've just finished has taken me over a year to complete so <laughs> you know you can't go with the day-to-day. -day. Are you going to um, react to the Windrush um, uh, fiasco is that something that you'll do a piece of artwork on? Uh, it's certainly the sort of thing I could uh, do a piece on but I, I think political art works in a really interesting way because it is undeniably an artwork, but it also has a foot in the real world, in the real state of politics or society as it is. And that's a, it's a kind of um, anomalous uh, position for, an, you know, for, for a sculpture to, to sit in. And so it, it's a powerful thing. It can show us something or it can explain something about the situation we find ourselves in that isn't immediately ob obvious. But... Um, yeah, in order to do that, you've got to find some unnoticed nub, you know, some something to uncover in in the political discourse, which isn't it doesn't it doesn't always arise, you know, these things kind of pop up. Um, because you like to you like very much, don't you, to provoke uh, a debate with your art, don't you? An argument. I mean, when you, when when someone goes into your gallery, it, it, it's the, the the great Monty Python question: Is this the right room for an argument? <laughs> um, well, I certainly have created arguments. Um, uh, f four or five years ago, I made a, a sculptural piece about uh, climate change denial. Um, and it was fairly punchy, I think, because I named uh, some prominent climate change. They would call themselves skeptics. I would call them deniers. Um, and, I, and I have to admit that when I was, f when I was f forming the piece, I did wonder about whether it was legally advisable to put people's names on it. But I, I did a, 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 as a sort of sense check, I, I did a Google search for prominent British climate change denier. And I picked anyone who appeared on the first page. And I thought that would probably stand up in court. Uh, and, and so it came to pass, really. Uh, one of them threatened to sue the gallery. It was in the Ruskin Gallery. Uh, but he also rather spectacularly turned up in the gallery, threatening to destroy the artwork. And, and so he's pole position to become my muse. Uh, well, it's great that you get such um, a tremendous reaction from it. Now, now talking about the, the, the far right or, or those kind of sensibilities that you get a reaction from, do they frighten you, some of these people? Well, I, th I certainly think they should frighten all of us. Um... And, and yes, I mean, individually, there are some very unsavory characters. But I, I think the rise of extreme politics, you know, the, the effect that um, social media is having on social discourse, the malign effects of 
perhaps the Russians or other special interest groups, uh, I think should worry us all, yes. Uh, what would you say those effects actually are? Well, I think they're all just coming to light, aren't they? That we're invested, the Americans and the British government are investigating the effect of, that the Russians have had on recent, recent votes. Um, but I think it's now possible for anyone with a lot of money to have a, a very disproportionate effect on what people think. It used to be you had to buy newspapers. You no longer have to do that. You just have to spend money with social media businesses. Um, and, and, and do you think that um, the people's um, lives are being very squashed flat by that, that, that pe people um, have less of a say in the world um, about what's, what's happening to their lives, basically? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the promise of social media is that we are given much more of a say. But in fact, I think probably the effect on uh, democracy is, is a negative one. Right, okay. Now, uh, what have been your um, uh, personal triumphs um, in your best pieces and what has actually attracted the most amount of reaction from um, people from? Uh, I mean, what would you say you were absolutely delighted with the reaction from something that you've done? Um, well, the, I think one of the ones I've been most pleased about addressed uh, the child abuse scandal within the Catholic Church. And uh, it, it was a piece that I originated while I was still studying at Anglia Ruskin University at the Cambridge School of Art. Uh, and I did it in partnership with another student there who was a, a composer. And uh, so what we did was took the words from a UN report into the child abuse scandal. Uh, and I, I set about trying to imagine what it would be like if the, the Catholic Church had internalized it, had accepted you know, the wrong that had been done uh, and perhaps then set about putting it right instead of what they seem to have often have done, defended the abusers rather than looking after the children, if you see what I mean. Um, and, and so what I did was took words from a UN report and had it set to music so it would be sung like a psalm. Uh, and I entered that into a competition in Venice, uh, not expecting much. Uh, you know, Venice isn't so very far from the Vatican. And, but I'm delighted to say that, that it, it won the Venice Art Laguna Prize. Uh, and so the, the piece was performed in the Arsenale in Venice, which is where the Biennale is held. So it doesn't get much better, really. So I was very pleased about that one. Your latest work, which is a Children of, of Calais, which is um, um, an interesting sculpture um, by all accounts. Um, and it's going to be unveiled by Lord Dubbs, the Labour peer and former child refugee um, uh, in Saffron Walden um, quite soon. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Certainly. Um, so it's called the Children of Calais because it... Uh, is uh, it's a development of the Burgers of Calais, a very famous sculpture by Rodin. And uh, the sculpture came, the artwork came about because my wife and I were at the opening of a, a bookshop and she got into a blazing row with an MP who... Uh, contended that child refugees in Calais, whether or not they had families here expecting them, waiting for them, they should never be allowed into the UK. They had to remain in Calais because otherwise more would come. 
So it was this idea that they would act as a uh, a shield, a bulwark against uh, more child refugees coming. And try as I might, I cannot understand that mindset. You know, we're talking about children. Um, and Britain is a founder member of or a founder signatory to the UN declarations on the rights of the child, uh, which would preclude us treating children like that. So, you know, there, I, I couldn't get my head around that way of thinking about children. And uh, it so happened that it, this was all happening in Calais. So I seethed about this. I debated it with my wife, Claire. Uh, and what we came to was the most famous sculpture to come from Calais, which was the Burgers of Calais. Uh, and it was commissioned in 1880 by the city of, of Calais to commemorate an, an event much earlier in the 14th century, during the Hundred Years' War, when the English um, laid siege to the city of Calais and King Philip of France didn't defend it. He said, no, you hold out against all costs. Um, and after a year, Calais couldn't hold out any longer and so they sued for peace. And the English king, Edward III, uh, said that he would spare the city on condition that the castle was surrendered, surrendered and that six burghers of the city of Calais surrendered themselves. Uh, and they had to arrive with nooses ready around their necks, so presumably he would hang them. Uh, and then in the event, his wife... Queen Philippa, who knew that England once had a Queen Philippa? Um, she talked him out of it, so the six burghers survived. So um, Rodin's uh, sculpture memorialises those six burghers. Um, so he captures them at the moment they walk out through the gates of the city with nooses around their necks, carrying the keys to the city, going to their certain death. They are being sacrificed for the greater good. And I just thought, what a marvellous, what a marvellous um, parallel for the sacrifice being asked of these child refugees, this idea that they will protect us from more refugees. Um, and so what I did was recreated Rodin's sculpture, but with contemporary children. So there are six contemporary children uh, in contemporary clothes, but they are in exactly the same positions and arrangement as the six figures in Rodin's very famous sculpture. In Rodin's sculpture, he was, he was creating people who had lost all hope. They were wa walking to their certain death. And the arrangement of the figures uh, is uh, incredible, I think. The six of them each express despair in different ways. It's six different ways of, of portraying despair. And none of them look at another. They all look in, a, in different directions and they're all sort of lost in their own grief. Um, and so really, I can't claim to have, uh, <laughs> have created the arrangement, uh, the, the posing. I, I used Rodin's idea. But when you apply that despair in the, and that body language to children, it, I think it becomes even more heartbreaking. You know, um, I use, one of my children was one of my mob models, uh, and the other five models were the children of, of my friends. So these are all real children who live locally. And they all look so desperately in need of protection. And, and I suppose that's the message of the sculpture, really. You know, it's, we often hear 
uh, in the media now that refugees are the other. They're, they're someone else. They're not our responsibility. But the fact is refugees can be anyone. Anyone can become a refugee. And... Uh, uh, that, that's why you've got um, Lord Dubbs as the person unveiling it on, on, on the 8th of um, June in 2018, because he's actually been a, a, a refugee himself. It's, it's an important person to actually bring into that. Exactly. Uh, Lord Dubbs, who he's uh, um, a, a very prominent campaigner for refugee rights through his role in the House of Lords, uh, and he proposed an amendment to legislation called the Dubs Amendment, which would allow 3,000 unaccompanied children to, to come to the UK. And, and I think that worked for a while, but the, the government later cancelled it. But at least that allowed 850 children to find safety. Uh, and he's, he's the perfect person to uh, unveil the sculpture because, yes, he arrived as a small child uh, during the Second World War as one of the kinder transport children uh, and so has been a, a, a recipient of, mm. of Britain's better side, I think. Um, Ian Walter, thank you very much indeed for coming into Cambridge 105 to talk about your sculpture. Thank you. Thank you very much, Simon. Serving our university city and South Cambridgeshire. This is Cambridge 105 Radio. Looking at a piece of emotive artwork can be like taking a shot of Red Bull with something strong in it when life gets a bit mundane, adding a power to a poignant moment and making an expressive point. Affordable prints of great street and urban artwork are much in demand lately as people use it to let off some steam or express the politics of dissatisfaction, with Banksy of course leading the way. It's this phenomenon that the Art Hound Gallery based at Burwash Manor in Barton near Cambridge has provoked them to bring a collection of work to Bennett's Cafe in King's Parade in a pop-up gallery on May the 11th. It'll include music and interactive features that make the whole approach to buying artwork more personally meaningful. Gallery director Natasha Dawn says it's passionate, lively work that impacts on the psyche and it encompasses contemporary art prints and especially pop-up art by a range of famous and emerging artists that encapsulate a sense of urban chic. So the core concept of the Art Hound is really about piecing together artworks from a huge variety of genres and places. So we have art here from literally 1910 all the way to the present day. But it's all about finding the works within every kind of genre from surrealism in modern art, in abstract art, to contemporary art, particularly to pop art as well, that has a common thread. So our clients, we like to find um, unusual pieces for them that actually fit together. So this could be, in my, basically because I'm the main buyer here, I try and find works that fit together with my idea of pop. So that's not necessarily pop art, but it could be, but an idea of things like pop of colour, pop of... Um, inspiration, something that's sort of different and funky. And you can find that even in works from the 1930s. So that's what we do. We find works from all these different genres that sort of fit together in some big jigsaw. Let's have a look at some of the things that you've actually got here. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the stuff that's actually on display here? Well, often some of the first pieces that people are really surprised to find out here, out in this sort of beautiful farmyard country setting, are, you know, the top names of contemporary art. So just on the wall over here, we've got a Damien Hirst, um, and that's an original spin painting by him um, from 2009. 
Now, these spin paintings were created as sort of a, almost like a performance art in itself for his very first uh, solo show in, um, in the Ukraine. And he was actually present, which is very rare for Hearst, actually present when these spin paintings were created. Um, so Damien Hearst spin painting, and of course, if you know Damien Hearst, I'm sure you know Tracy Emin. And on the wall, we have one of Tracy Emin's famous um, neon works, at least a print of it anyway, which is signed by her. So it's an affordable way of actually tapping into these, these big names and, and investment pieces. Great, okay. Um, now, um, pop art obviously is a big thing, and we've come to talk a little bit about the pop art exhibition that you're going to be having um, in central Cambridge on the um, 11th of May um, at St Bennett's Cafe, but we'll come back to that in just a moment. Let's talk a little bit about pop art, if we, if we may. Um, it's very much still alive after 60 years as something that people are currently interested in and buying at the moment, isn't it? Totally. And what's really fascinating is I saw this coming as, as somebody, you know, working in as a dealer. Um, what I saw was that obviously with street and urban art since the 2000s being the thing that you saw in London, whether it was on street walls or suddenly prints coming out of it, you saw directly where their inspirations were coming from. And it was clear it was people like Andy Warhol, Lichtenstein. Um, and you can see that running right the way through into people like Banksy's work and Ben Ein's work and all these big street artists. So the, the inspiration is, is clear. And I think people who have collected street art and, and been on that scene, that's you know where their, their passion has, has come from. Well, how, what do you think actually distinguishes pop art from other kinds of art? Um, is it just that it's... Um emotive art with action in it is that is that what it is well i i think of it as is art that that links into popular culture you know for me i'm a real mtv generate generation xer you know playstation everything to do with bands and and films and and you know that's my life so an art that seeps into that is obviously the one that's going to appeal to me so that's where I kind of see it come out from you know pop art at itself is an art that represents popular culture and there's also arguments for things like Salvador Dali being the very first pop artist with his use of Mae West lips and you know the first Coca-Cola bottle to appear in fine art so those kind of things for me is what defines pop art but obviously it has a you know a wider a wider boundary than that but ultimately I think you can trace it back to something that, that's representing popular culture of, of whatever time. Um, as a movement it tends to um, appeal more to older people than younger people. Why is that? Because there are images that seem to me to be things that young people would like. This is so fascinating, isn't it? Yes. So the millennial generation are not the collectors of pop art or even, um, you know, the street art that has come out of it, has grown out of it. It's very much, as I say, for people my generation, late 30s plus. Um, why is that? It's a phenomenon. A lot of um, new artists, you know, from the millennial generation who are studying at art college at the moment, I'll ask them who they're you know, inspirations are, and it's always quite representational, cool and edgy representational, people like Lucian Freud and Francis Bacon, but people have gone back to painting in, you know, at art school. So at the moment, the collectors of pop art are people who really respond to those kind of images, you know, people who come in here and see, gosh, you know, that's, that's Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones. That's cool. I want that on my wall. And that's kind of what I respond to. So those are the collectors at the moment. Maybe the, it's interesting, the younger generation perhaps haven't we... 
they haven't grown up with those icons like we did. You know, we grew up with people like Madonna or, you know, um, my you know, idols like mine, Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols, those kind of people. And maybe the millennials haven't grown up with those icons and don't have the connection in that way. Who knows? Uh, what do you think of... Um, it's about, you know, hmm. dead celebrities, ultimately. I'm looking at um, Banksy, obviously, um, hmm. as, as, the, as someone who everybody's interested in at the moment. Um, do you think that art can seriously fight um, political battles in the mind, is it? Totally. And, and, you know, things like uh, Banksy using politics for art is nothing new. Mm. I've just literally come back yesterday from London to pick up a, a even more political perhaps than Banksy's piece, uh, an original um, silk screen from 1970 by a very famous British pop artist called Richard Hamilton, um, entitled Kent State, uh, which is something we'll be showing. And Kent State is a silk screen image of a television um, from 1970 showing uh, a dead murdered student in the Kent State uh, University massacre, which obviously is highly political and amazingly highly relevant for the state of American politics to this day, which is one of the reasons that we've got our hands on this piece and are wanting to show it. So, you know, it's it's fascinating that someone like Banksy can be on the, or any street artist actually, on the, on the forefront of, you know, contemporary politics, yet we look at pop art dealing with old politics and actually it's highly relevant you know i keep going back to warhol but he, you know his revelations came true F 15 minutes of fame you know he predicted what our society was leading into now, who are the rising stars of the contemporary art scene that you're fronting here so um the people that really we represent who are coming into the forefront and you know linked very much to pop art people like Shepard Fairey. Now Shepard Fairey is an American artist and in America I wouldn't even have to explain who he was to you um, and many people are excited to see his work here but he's became very well known for his poster for Obama in the Obama campaign when he was running for president with hope underneath it. And he's had the cover of Time magazine many times. Um, so it's very unusual to find Shepard Fairey's works here in the UK. So we have him um, and, you know, other people that we're representing, people like Ben Ayn, who is, you know, now a very famous um, street artist. And you'll see his uh, you know, graphic work all the way down Brick Lane. Um, that sounds absolutely great. Now, now um, you also experiment with um, printmaking, don't you, here? Is that, is that something else that you do? So we work with a lot of experimental printmakers. Okay. So, uh, you know, we're passionate about the idea of original printmaking, which is kind of, you know, one thing the pop artists really also delved into back in the, you know, the, the 60s and 70s. So we work with today's experimental printmakers. So it's all about nothing is a reproduction print. Um, there is no original uh, that somebody has copied and made a print of. It really doesn't exist in that way. So we work with people who, artists who just create prints and are incredibly experimental with them. Some of them are hand-painted, some of them are prints with collage involved, and, and that's really the way the printmaking is going. Right, now people are going to get an opportunity to um, see some of this fantastic artwork and pop art in Cambridge quite soon. Can you tell me about the pop-up gallery? So, yes, very exciting for us. We're going to be having a pop-up exhibition, pun intended, pop-up, because, of course, it is all about pop art and its legacy. And that's going to be on Friday the 11th of May uh, at Bennett's Cafe in on King's Parade, right in the centre of Cambridge. And we're having a takeover. So um, from 6.30 to 9pm on that Friday evening, people can come down and they can see all... The, 
I think our best selection of, of, you know, pop art that we have from the 60s and 70s, and also explore within that exhibition the legacy of contemporary art, uh, street, urban, and other works of fine art that have been directly influenced. Natasha, it's been absolutely great talking to you here at the Art Hound Gallery. I look forward to going to the exhibition. Um, Natasha Dawn, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for coming down. Okay. The ink pen of a poet can easily take him on a surprising literary adventure both in Cambridge and the world beyond, as I found out when talking to poet, actor and author Michael Brown. A keen theatre and film enthusiast, Brown is currently writing a science fiction novel and screenplay containing of all things aliens. It's just as well that he's a friend of actress Sigourney Weaver, Hollywood's top screen alien Terminator, who he got to know after he was charged with showing her around Cambridge. As an events organiser for the Festival of Ideas and the Literary Festival, he's been on something of a role as a poet and took time out to tell Cambridge 105 about his experiences. Uh, I gather, Michael, um, you describe yourself as a poet with soul and mind without control. Um, can you um, give us a sample of your poetry? Um, I saw that you'd done quite an interesting piece um, on the Strawberry Fair, which is something that's coming up um, quite soon um, in Cambridge. And obviously, um, Cambridge 105 always likes to participate in the Strawberry Fair. Is that one you know from off by heart? Or? Strawberry Fair, composed at Midsummer Common. Everyone is so fruity. Colourful characters. We won't be contained by jars. Though some wear lids for hats. Sweet, sugary and delicious, we all jam together. A mixed berries of diverse delight. Strawberry Fair starts the summer. A parade of all people. Poets and bands dripping treacle. Afternoon balloons high. Candy floss hair and face paint bright glare. I noticed in your poetry there's lots of intent um, observation um, of people. What happens in that process for you? Do you sit for ages watching other people and, and, just, and think about them? I mean, how does that work? Um, I'm definitely an eavesdropper, so I definitely love to listen to people. And I think those little moments can produce some fascinating things. And I've often kind of constructed whole poems around just a little something that I've heard or something that someone's done. So, for example, I wrote a poem called Holland Park about a lady who was uh, looking at her smartphone through a magnifying glass. Um, yeah, I think as a poet, you have to be an observer. And I think a good thing to do sometimes is to sit somewhere and people watch. And often inspiration will, will come will come from that. Now, um, you, your, your uh, poetry career started when you were quite young. I mean, you were born in Manchester, and I gather you studied um, at Mercurial St. Martin's University of the Arts in, in London. How did it all begin? Um, and, um, and how did you come to be doing all these exciting things in Cambridge, which we're going to talk about in a moment? What happened in Manchester and, and at the art college? Uh, so in Manchester at Sixth Form College, um, we had a creative writing group which met every Wednesday um, and that kind of really started my writing of poetry. Uh, my friend Paul from the time sadly died and it was one of his final requests to have me write and read a poem at his funeral. So from that moment on it became more serious and it's something that I always did. Um, yeah, so when I moved to Cambridge, um, I've studied at Pembroke College here. Um, in 2014, I completed the National Academy of Writing. But to kind of um, continue my writing career, I actually really wanted to study at Central St. Martins, and I found studying the arts, so I did creative writing contemporary collage. 
that actually working in different artistic mediums, I used it as a process to help me write new poetry and it seemed to have worked. Now, now you're, you're now currently head of the Poetry Society at Pembroke College. You're, you've also um, had a great deal of input in the Festival of Ideas and are now working on the Literary Festival. So um, what are um, your skills? Why do they all want you to do these things? Um, and what do you do there? Um, yeah, so I think organisation is key. Often with these events in Cambridge, um, like the Festival Ideas, which I've been doing for four years now, you, you we're almost planning it a year ahead. Um, so I think organisation is key. Um, I think um, often people are waiting for creative opportunities, but I've always been the kind of person to just make them happen. Um, I mean, I approached the Festival Ideas and asked to do poetry tours, and I've been doing them now for four years. They're always sold out, and it's kind of expanded every year that I'm doing more and more. Um, I worked for Cambridge Literature Festival since it was WordFest. I volunteered in the early days as a steward, and then they gave me a paid role as head steward, and now I've become, you know, uh, much more involved at the festival, and I'm always working there. Um, twice a year. Um, tell me about being a tour guide because um, you've been a tour guide, um, a poetry tour guide in Cambridge. What does that entail exactly? Um, so yeah, just as um, a sort of little part-time job um, for about, oh, I don't know, seven years now I've worked as a tour guide. Um, initially I was a walking tour guide and at the moment I'm actually a, a, um, a cycling tour guide so I do bike tours of Cambridge. Um, I have on occasion had groups or people request the literary tour um, which I guess I pioneered with the Festival Ideas. And I think kind of, you know, my tours developed over time. I like to kind of tell the contemporary stories of Cambridge and bring in the arts and poetry as well, not just kind of the history that everyone knows or supposedly wants to hear. Now, I gather that you're branching into um, Haunted Cambridge as, as, a, as a new departure. What's happening there? Um, yeah, well, I have done ghost tours before, and I think the kind of the darker side of Cambridge is particularly interesting. So, yeah, that is something that I, I've explored. Um, just to backtrack, you asked me before about um, Pembroke Poetry Society. So, PEMSOC, as it's known, is a um, creative writing group that meets at Pembroke College. I'm the current president for this year. Uh, it's been running for a number of years. Um, everyone who's been a president has been published, and the group has actually produced a lot of um, good writers so I'm kind of very um, excited to be part of it and Pembroke have always been very supportive of poets and writers having produced Ted Hughes, uh, Christopher Smart for example um, the, you know, the college has a good reputation for poets in that way. Well, what's the current picture in Cambridge University um, as a poet um, working in the middle of it all in terms of movements in poetry um, within the university? How, how does the spectrum kind of divide itself? Because there's, there's actually, to me, a lot of separation and division in terms of um, performance poetry and spoken word and poetry of the page. And there seems to be kind of serious academic poetry and journals versus kind of more informal writing groups. And I think there's benefit in all of it. I like personally to kind of... I'm the kind of person to kind of go to every club, but not necessarily belong anywhere and then kind of just form new things where... I think at key kind of creative points, movements and different styles and different aspects kind of merge together. And I think 
there can be you know good things found in all of that. Now, a lot of these um, th- th- these poets in Cambridge go off to various festivals. I'm, I'm told that you're someone who likes to um, travel um, a lot and don't, don't think twice about making a huge journey in order to go and do poetry in other cities. And obviously, we have a lot of visiting poets in Cambridge as well. I mean, how does that work? Um, is that a, a, a very exciting thing at the moment to be involved in? Um, and and what kind of people do you meet when you're doing it? Yes, certainly. I went to um, Howl Festival in New York City. I actually previously lived in New York for nine months. And one one time when I was back on holiday, I timed it so I could perform at Howl. Um, It's at Tompkins Square uh, Gardens in St. Mark's Place in the East Village. And the whole park just gets taken over by poets. Um, They do street art all around the park. You can just pop up and perform in little green spaces. There's lots of captive audiences there. We did a group performance of Howl by Ginsberg, uh, which was very inspiring. Um, I mean, it really varies all over the world. There's certainly certain cities like Cambridge, London, New York, where poetry is really strong. Um, This summer, I'm actually going away for three months, so I'm travelling in the United States uh, and living in Canada. Um, I'm kind of going to shift my writing. I'm doing some screenplay writing in Canada, but also kind of I'll get involved in poetry events there and see what happens. Now, you're also an actor, so what kind of acting do you do? Acting doing what? What what are these performances that you do? Um, So I'm currently in season four of The Royals, um, which is out on Amazon and Entertainment Channel in the States. Um, I play the groomsman in The Royal Household, and I played a ring bearer at The Royal Wedding. Um... It's, it's interesting to talk about it, and I don't really want to do spoilers, but the wedding episodes in particular were amazing to do. We filmed at Ely Cathedral, so I was lucky to get the part because I was Cambridge-based, and a lot of the on-location places um, that they chose to shoot um, were in Cambridgeshire. But yeah, the wedding scene in particular, I was there for a number of days, and there's kind of a good twist and lots of action that happens towards the end that you wouldn't expect. Um, now, um, obviously, um, with this acting, you, you rub shoulders with some um, quite famous actors and people, but but one one of whom um, is particularly notable that you mentioned was um, Sigourney Weaver, who's one of your friends. Uh, tell us about her. Yeah, it's kind of very strange to have Sigourney Weaver as a friend and also a big fan of my poetry. Um, so I was on the committee of the Cambridge Union, um, Cambridge University's debating society. Um, I did a certain position for a year and as a perk, I got to go to a celebrity dinner. So she'd done a talk that day. Um, we took her on a tour of Cambridge, actually. I toured around Trinity College. Uh, we went for dinner at Jamie's Italian. And then the following day, she said... Um, She was free in the morning. She was going to Kensington Palace for lunch uh, with Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, William and Kate. So I suggested we go punting. And this is where the key thing happened. So we went punting at Quayside. uh, And I was performing poems on the punt to Sigourney and her director husband, Jim. She filmed these videos and put them on YouTube. But we actually had the paparazzi follow us um, whilst uh, we were on the punts. What happened was we originally booked in for Granta Place, but her driver and agent brought her to Quayside, so we changed. By the time we got there, there were lots of photographers. Um, after the punting, she wanted to go shopping in Cambridge. I took her to Heifer's to buy some books and show her around, and yeah, we, we were kind of papped all day. The photos the following day ended up on the cover of the Daily Mail, Hello Magazine, the New York Times... 
and yeah, I saw a big spike in my audiobook sales. Um, so, so, so what's she like um, off the screen? What, what kind of a person is she uh, in, in real life? She's incredibly tall, but she is so down to earth and very humble. And, you know, she's kind of my idol. So to meet her and to, for us to get along, she, she's a very pleasant, um, you know, grounded person. Sigourney is one of the biggest fans of my audiobook, so I'm an audiobook author, and I've narrated um, other books, academic and other authors. But yeah, she was interviewed in The Guardian. Um, she was on the uh, set of The Defenders, which is a TV show, and she mentioned that she was in her trailer listening to my latest audiobook, and she was one of the first people to review it. So it's pretty awesome to have a celebrity fan and endorsement. It seems now that Cambridge has become a hotspot for filming. I mean, certainly in the historic centre, there's so many beautiful unspoilt places, which for a crew to turn up and film, it's so easy. I mean, I've seen here the fear of everything being filmed and I've actually been in films and TV shows that are filmed here as an extra. And, you know, Cambridge is actually kind of on the up with that. And I think we'll see more of that in the future. Um, do you think there is enough um, diversity in Cambridge? Uh, do you think it's a place where absolutely everybody is accepted or, or is, it, is that not the picture? Yeah, I think Cambridge is an incredibly diverse place and we have a very international population. Um, I think because the university dominates and the university is very white and upper middle class, we, we do kind of have that issue here. But I think, yeah, I mean, as a gay man, uh, married to my husband, we've lived here for seven years now. I think Cambridge is a very inclusive place. I think it's very accepting and tolerant. Um, I organised um, a community event as part of Pink Festival. So this is kind of an LGBT pride event. Um, and I ran an event at the Guildhall uh, where we had uh, youth groups, different community groups, different LGBT charities. We had the police, and fire brigade come and speak. And that was a very successful event. And I understand that in 2019, we are actually going to have a proper Cambridge Pride with a parade. Um, there's kind of talks about doing something on the river and a committee has formed uh, with support from the Pink Festival and Compass Network. So that will be going ahead and I will be part of, of that and organising the event. So I often like to go to Granchester Meadows in Cambridge. I'll cycle to Granchester and find somewhere nice to sit along the river and write poetry or edit my poetry. And this is one uh, poem I composed there. Collage of Granchester Meadows. Tree fingers puckered. Morning sun dries out. River legs stretch out. Skin ripples. The cows rush hour, muddy pause, while cyclist wheels crackle. The bird's song, whistling grass, interrupted by wet dog barking. The sky folds, still purity, moments of birds. Path climbs, jogger's breath, hay fever sneezes. A tree dips, finger branches into the palm of a calm cam. Michael Brown, thank you very much indeed for sparing some time to talk to Cambridge 105. It's been most interesting. A pleasure, Simon. All the best. Across the city and South Cambridgeshire. Cambridge 105 Radio. The Giant Angel of the North is a sculpture most of us know, and its creator, Anthony Gormley, will be featured at Kettle's Yard this month in a new exhibition called Subject. The show will highlight Anthony Gormley's interests and takes you on a series of encounters, both physical and metaphysical, to look at our sense of space and self. It also features the BBC's imagined documentary Anthony Gormley being human. Gormley, a Turner Prize winner who studied history of art at Trinity College, Cambridge in the 1960s, focuses on the human body, and many of his works are metal moulds taken from his own body and represent our relationship with the world and space within. 
In recent years, digital cubism has engaged him, solid steel cubes rendering human form in a series of postures and poses. The show, which features the first showing of Infinite Cube 2, a 2018 work, opens on the 22nd of May. That's all from this month's Arts Roundup. I hope you enjoyed the show. I'll be back with another set of feature interviews on June the 16th and wish you happy adventures in the local art dimension as it gears up for the long summer.